Good morning. This is the D-O-L-W-3 podcast. We have been having as our guest as of late, um, O.V. Cruz. He is uh, uh, was a bishop, an archbishop in the Philippines. He was an outspoken um, advocate against uh, the, the gambling and um, prostitution and drugs that um, the government was involved there. And he also stood up for the corruption in the church. And he wrote this book, The Call of the Laity, uh, and, and to explain what the what the duties of the laity are and how important the laity are in um, in our communities and in the world. Why? Because we are the salt of the earth. We there we are we are in great numbers. The clergy cannot just do this on their own. They need the laity. The clergy have to partake in their sacraments and in and um, administration things in the church. And the laity, you know, are part of the communities. We evangelize right in the communities and in the world. So the call of the laity, I think, is real important in these times because we are fighting the corruption within the church and um, and also in the secular world. So, um, so I'm I'm glad that Ovi Cruz is with us today, and we will also be reading a little bit from the Rite of Sodomy, the Homosexuality and the Roman Catholic Church, and for you just to think about. Um, and, she, and I stop for a minute here. Um, um, Randy Ingalls, we have been reading from that too, right along. The, we have several podcasts going on all around to the Lansing Diocese, and um, Randy Ingalls is is the one who wrote and took 17 years of her life a, um, a wonderful layperson and a big help to, to our father in his mission of salvation and correcting the corruptions in the church. Um, I highly uh, recommend the rite of sodomy for you to see how deep the network is in the Catholic church. Okay, and with that, I want to start with with the Bible verse, because I want you to realize that um, we've talked about this many times too, is that we are a voice. Um, we advocate for voices, and especially those voices um, within our church who get snuffed out, who are not validated, maybe partially because of how they look. Um, maybe the priest doesn't want to spend time with them. Um, who knows what the reasons are? But I want to read from Isaiah. 42, uh, chapter 42, verse 3 and 4. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow dim or be bruised until he establishes justice on earth. The coastlands will wait for his teachings. Okay, and I I chose that because, um, because of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit put that on my heart today. So I want to talk about to the types of people Jesus was attracted to. He was attracted to hopeless cases. Um, he loved the fragile. He loves healing the people who have been beaten, battered, and bruised. And when, we, when in Hebrew, when they talk about the bruise, the bruises, um, you know, Isaiah is talking about crushed, and the Hebrew language talks about crushed. The human spirit in this bruise, you may not see the bruises on the outside of the body, 
but the crushed spirit on the inside of the body. I have a friend um, who um, really fell into that category, and he used to go into the uh, the uh, chapel, um, the Adoration Chapel at Holy Redeemer Parish in Burton. And um, uh, one time he was confronted and about going into the chapel. Maybe he didn't dress as um, nicely as some Catholics. Um, and his spirit was crushed, his spirit was bruised. And from there, he went into the depths of... Um, evil. He, he went into Satanism, and he will tell you his story. And and his soul finally came back. And um, what he went through and the experience he went through, you know, his bruised and crushed spirit. So, you know, um, talking about Jesus and talking about this, the bruised, um, the bruised reed, you know, don't just think of bruises on the outside. When you see somebody, that face can, can often... Um, have such an untold story inside. So we, we advocate for those voices, the voices that um, don't have a platform, you know, in the hierarchy in the church, um, with our bishops, with our priests in our parishes. Um, these are often the ones that are just walked past and ignored. So that is our platform. So today we're going to read, like I said, from the call of the laity. We're going to start where we left off from yesterday. On page 60, to strive so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all people throughout the world. The law has three clear entries in the above cited provision. I'm going to stop here. I think what I do, should do again is read that law that um, Ovi Cruz is dissecting here. And it is Canon Law 225, paragraph 1, CIC. For those of you who don't know the law that we're talking about, since lay people, like all the Christian faithful, are dep deputed to the apostolate by baptism and confirmation, they are bound by the general obligation and have the right, whether as individuals or in associations, to strive so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all people throughout the world. This obligation is also the more insistent in circumstances wherein only through them are people able to hear the gospel and to know Christ. And what, what this law is indicating, and we'll, we'll see here, is that through our baptism and through our confirmation, um, we, we are the lay people, we are the most numbered people um, throughout the world to help Jesus in his mission of salvation. Okay, so now we're going to go back to number six on page 60. To strive so that the divine message of salvation may be known and accepted by all people throughout the world. The law has three clear entries in the above cited provision. Viz. One, the divine message of salvation. Two, the divine message should be known to all people. Three, the same divine message should be also accepted by all people. There are likewise three evident conclusions that emerge from the above provision. First, that the message has God himself as its origin. Second, the divine message is meant for all people throughout the world. Third, the laity are indispensable agents in such a formidable world-wide mission. The message of salvation directly comes from God who wants that it should be made known to all people. 
for this plan to materialize. God specifically calls the Christian faithful to be his messengers. This calling in turn is known as the Christian vocation. And this vocation, on the other hand, is intended for a mission. Finally, this mission is the evangelization of people precisely by making them known the message of salvation. God does not only want that his message of salvation to be made known to all people. He further desires that his message of salvation be also accepted by all people throughout the world. In the event that his messengers, the laity in particular, have some doubt or reservations about the viable reality of the design of God for all people in the world, not only to know, but also to accept his message of salvation. It would be good for the said lay messengers to recall to mind the following scriptural truths. One, there is nothing impossible with God. Luke 1.37 Two, God wants all people to be saved. Timothy 2.4 And three, Christ himself is with the disciple messengers till the end of time. Matthew in, his, in its more elementary explanation, the divine message of salvation consists in the Paschal mystery. For example, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ that took place categorically for the salvation of humanity from the state of sin to the life of grace, from damnation here and hereafter to eternal salvation beyond. The life of the incarnated word of God in the person of the Lord Jesus from his conception to his second advent, has but one and only one fundamental and primary goal. This is the salvation of all people, of humanity the world over. For people to know the divine message of salvation, this is done by the calling from God and the response of the Christian faithful. The laity in particular, who are the most in number, who reside particularly in all parts of the globe, and who are wherefore in touch with all people throughout the world. But for people to accept the known divine message of salvation, this is purely the result of grace and solely the work of God himself, that it can be said that what the lay messengers ably started is ultimately brought to fulfillment by God who called them and for them and accompanied them in their evangelization mission. Number seven, the obligation or this obligation is all the more insistent in circumstances wherein only through them are people able to hear the gospel and to know Christ. I think that's very important um, in this message is that, you know, so many parts of the world don't have priests, don't have anyone, and um, how their message to bring this out and how faithful these missionaries are in, you know, putting their lives um at risk in some of the territories they go into. Um, and, and even in our own, um, add a little more here, even in our own communities, when you look at, you know, prostitution, gambling, um, drug addiction, alcoholism, and you look at people on the streets living um, that way, you know, lay people can be afraid to go into that. And not all lay people, but... Um, I think, you know, I think in in the churches, it's come to be that um, 
you know, we do things in our little church communities and, you know, and it's all sanctioned by the church and people are afraid to step out of that um, without being sanctioned by the church. And I think that's, that's, uh, that is constricting, constricting God. Um, why? Because first of all, God can call people and, and, you know, people may feel called to go into the community and be near the homeless and, and help the homeless and, you know, bring them food. Even if, even if society says, hey, that's not safe over there. Um, when we walk with God, just like Mother Teresa, you know, going into the streets of Calcutta, she dealt with many, um, all kinds of evil that were there in the streets. And I think with God as our guide, um, we are like we are like Simon to Jesus carrying that cross. Okay. So number seven again, this obligation is all the more insistent in circumstances wherein only through them are people able to hear the gospel and to know Christ. The immediate question that comes to mind is what concretely are those circumstances that create such situations that only the laity can more properly get involved in and more able ably to face in order to undertake their mission of of evangelization. What are such adverse situational realities that make the laity more adapted and able to counter and to hopefully neutralize? Can or may the clergy and or the religious not really do it, and probably even more effectively? Why or how could this be so? The following point out at the more common circumstantial factors with their consequent adverse situational features. One is when a given territory or a certain country as a whole pub, as a whole is publicly and at times even officially anti-Christian, such as fundamentalist Muslim areas. Two is where atheism is openly and likewise formally defended and promoted, such as radically communistic places. Three is in those places where vices are legally affirmed and cultivated as a business or industry, such as prostitution, gambling, and similar gross immoral organized activities. And like I said, I'm digressing again. So, and like I said, even in our own communities, um, one of the things I'm active in is is mission on the streets. And um, quite frankly, I go into some places that, you know, people, other people may not want to, and I feel called to. Um, I had hoped that that um, my church in, in Burton there would have um, extended their arm, but instead I was punished. In the above-mentioned markedly unchristian socio-religious and moral situation, the clergy and or the religious, if necessary, can, may, and shall be able to comply with their mission of evangelization. All the same, it would be relatively hard and imprudent, if not dangerous, for them to do so in these places under those circumstances, particularly when they are identified for what they really are. Hence, it is only the laity upon whom, by and large, the church reasonably reposes her mission agenda under those particular circumstances. They can more easily mingle and mix with such unevangelized or de-evangelized people in the different parts of the world. They can thus more readily 
though carefully, do their evangelization, evangelizing mission. I want to stop here because I'm being bothered by the Holy Spirit in, in, this, in a good way, that there's something that I need to say. So um, when I was first realized that um, the church didn't want to help me um, with a person that I was dealing with who, who um, had a mental illness, who was, um, um, as far as I'm concerned, called it excommunicated from the parish because she um, accused the priest of molesting her. And um, she was in a full uh, schizophrenic state, and um, she was off her medications. I was part of the community um, outreach that we did, and um, me and my friend Mike, um, we you know jumped to the situation. Um, we got uh, um, affidavits for the priest so that you know he would be able to um, you know feel that you know hey this is this is um, a situation that can be handled and. Anyway, so what happened was, as I continued to see her, I helped her, um, I, I let her know that she was supported, and at that time in her life, she needed, she needed support, and she was working her way back from her um, serious mental state. But one of the things the priest said to me that really bothered me is um, when I said, you know, why didn't, why didn't you guys, why didn't somebody, because I wasn't, ha- I wasn't there when it happened, um, why didn't one of you, one of the staff members, go over and talk to her family about what was really wrong with her? And um, I was told, no, not in any circumstances would we do that. And um, I was also told that they didn't even know that she had mental illness. And you know, there's such a discrepancy in what I went through and what um, the things that they were saying. There was such duplicity in what they were saying to me. On one hand, they were telling me they could not recognize her as having a mental illness. When I knew, within an hour, first hour, I knew her. I knew that. And, and okay, I'll give them that. Maybe some people just don't get it. But then when, um, when Mike um, had advocated and we strongly... Um, uh, tried to help her and do the right things. We got her a guardian. Um, she is now far better off doing far more, um, living um, in her own apartment. And, um, you know, we've had to rally around her and her family to try to give her some community support because she lost the community support of her church. But what I want to say is that in a couple of the meetings that I was in, um, they told me that they believed um, Mike was possibly mentally ill. Now, I don't know about you, but when, I, when, when you have someone that has mental illness, and I seen, you know, like with this gal, and, um, and I recognized that she had mental illness, um, they were not able to see that in her, but they were sure able when, some, when someone was advocating for her that they might have mental illness. And, um, and this person is very credible in society, and uh, does many things and advocates for many uh, men, uh, mentally ill, for many elderly, for uh, homelessness, advocates for many of them and, and has helped their lives be better, yet they wanted to, to discredit him and say he was mentally ill. 
and myself, they, they um, kind of indicated to me, at least the deacon did, like, well, who do you think you are? What gives you the rights to, um, to, to know these things that the homeless would need? You know, like what he was meaning, what education do you have that permits you to do this? And he, of course, had degrees and things, and, and that's fine. I don't care if he has degrees, um, you know, and it wasn't necessary for me to tell him I had a degree. It wasn't important to me. What was important to me was his treatment of, of goodness, of uh, what I was being called to do. And he was not able to see that and able to get off his pedestal and um, see that God works in many ways in many people. And like the bruised reed that Jesus, um, you know, advocates for the hopeless, the, the hopeless cases, and he loved the fragile. He too had to go out into places that were considered by the scribes and the Pharisees to be off limits. And I have to think we're seeing this in our modern day church. You know, just look at it. You know, just look at this one instance. You know, you can see so clearly, or at least I can, um, that, you know, this is the Pharisees and the scribes all over again. Don't go touch those people. But, you know, um, you know, I was told by my priest when I asked, you know, for them to go, go talk to, um, why didn't somebody go talk to her family to find out what was going on? Uh, and it was like, he would said, over my dead body. Wow. That's pretty heavy duty. So anyways, all right, so we're going to carry on here. Um, in such particularly adverse situations, the law, in fact, qualified the evangelization presence of the laity therein as something insistent. This means that such lay presence is not only necessary, but also urgent. Insistent and urgent. We lay people are insistent and urgent. Among other things, this emphasizes not only the inherent significance of the ecclesial figure of laypersons, but also canonically accepts their competence for apostolic works they alone have the co-natural aptitude to undertake as a matter of course. Okay. The general and special and insistent obligation of the laity to spread the divine message of salvation, to evangelize the temporal order, and make their teaching presence in places and or among people is admittedly a formidable mandate. But considering their baptism and confirmation, attending to their attributes, aptitude and resourcefulness, plus the accompanying grace of Christ, the Savior of the world, the laity cannot but successfully comply with their obligation. What are imperative are the following. One, that they know who they really are in and for the church. Two, that they appreciate their evangelizing potentials and competence. Very important here. Those words, you know, your potentials and your competence. You know, the Holy Spirit works through all the members of the church all the members of Christ's body. Three, that they become resolved in actually becoming evangelizing agents, which can be done even by simply living their Christian life as they should. By authentic Christian living, the laity can proclaim the message of salvation to all those who behold their edifying Christian example. This we call witnessing. 
We are witnesses of Christ and the salvation and his salvation. Okay, conclusory observations. In the event that the laity do not take their rightful role in their community, in, in their country, in the world, they thereby, what thereby happens infallibly happens in terms of historical constant. In other words, if the laity by and large either do not know who they really are, ignore their obligation and right, and thus abstain from doing what they can and should be doing, especially in evangelizing the temporal order, the following is what usually takes place. This is very important here. Certain members of the clergy take over the role that right by right belongs to the laity. More specifically, in the socio-political component of the community. This happens when lay people prefer to remain and do their apostolate within the church confines. In the meantime, some of their clerics go to the streets to advocate the social and moral good. This phenomena is not only pitiful and strange, but also very disturbing. These, the roles and the functions are radically exchanged. And with the person's concern not exchanging the respective status and condition, you know, so, you know, if, if a priest goes into the society and the lay people stay within, who's taking care of, you know, the sacramental things? And, you know, the point is the priest needs to trust the laity and, um, and charge them with what the Holy Spirit calls, calls them to do. And to be that bridge, to be that arm that helps them in their communities, not to dig pits that they fall in, not to put... Um, you know, roadblocks up that they cannot get past and end up giving up. So the clerics can be such a help to those who want to work in the communities if they don't covet power and control. The clerics who are thus called activists, considered leftists, or given other brandings, usually then fall short in attending to their ordained priestly ministry, which should be their priority. Not that the clergy should not be in the prophetic function at all, but when activism becomes their priority, it is understandable that their ordained service, which only they can legitimately render, is lessened, if not altogether set aside to the great loss for the laity. And C, the temporal order is progressively more secularized or dechristianized and the moral sphere is gradually but surely desecrated. This basically means that materialism and individualism reign in the world of business and industry, hedonism and immorality, amorality, take over human conduct. When the laity are absent in these socio-temporal and moral concerns, neither do the clergy as a rule give active presence therein, Understandably, especially in such places as gambling establishments, prostitution dens, and other grossly immoral realities. That's pretty powerful. And we're going to end there with the call of the lady for today. And we'll begin on our next session, um, our next podcast on page 66. We just ended on page 65. We read from page 60 to 65 today. Okay, now let's see what time it is here.
So we're right at um, 27 minutes. And I was going to bring in The Rite of Sodomy today, um, Volume 4, The Homosexual Network in the American Hierarchy and Religious Orders. So with that, I'm going to bring, read um, from Randy Ingalls, who she is present with us. And right now I can picture um, O.V. Cruz, you know, who, who is advocating for these things. And, you know, he had such a deep conviction for, um, you know, preaching loudly about the corruption within the church. He just died a little over a year ago. And um, how he is witnessing here when we speak of uh, what Randy Engels so devotedly um, put 17 years of her life in in this investigation. And we hear in these podcasts uh, from the DOLW, um, the, the Diocese of Lansing Watch Group, we advocate that these books become part of requirement for young seminarians as they are becoming um, priests. Okay, so here I'm going to start on page 854, and I'm going to go to page, uh, let's see, 8. Uh, I wanted to finish this section, so we're going to go to page 8. Um, sorry about this, I keep losing my page. Um, 866. That's what that's saying. Okay, Bishop Robert H. Brom. And I'd like you to think as lay people out there, along with um, knowing that uh, O.V. Cruz is here present with us, and um, our, our lay person who did so much work, Randy Ingalls, is with us um, in spirit in these writings. And think about yourself, um, what this means, and, and how to wake up as a lay person in the church and to be, um, even if all you can do is keep eyes on situations and, and pay attention to what's going on in the church. Bishop Robert H. Brom. Like many homosexual bishops in AM Church, Bishop Brom's clerical career progressed relatively rapidly. Born in Arcadia, Wisconsin on September 18, 1938, young Brom attended St. Mary's College and Immaculate Heart of Mary Seminary in Winona, Michigan. I mean, sorry, Minnesota. He attended at the Gregorian University in Rome and was ordained a priest of the Winona Diocese in Rome on December 18, 1963. Winona is a small rural diocese in Minnesota. On May 23, 1983, Robert Brown was ordained Bishop of Duluth by fellow homosexual Archbishop John R. Roach of St. Paul, Minneapolis. Six years later, on April 22, 1889, the Vatican announced the appointment of Bishop Brown as co-adjutor Bishop of San Diego with right of succession to assist the ailing Bishop Leo Maher, who was suffering from brain cancer. Although there were high-level Minnesota diocesan officials who knew that Brahm had been charged with sexually abusing seminarians at Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona, these officials were silent when the Holy See appointed Brahm head of the San Diego Diocese. As for the Holy See, as for the Holy See, the record shows that Vatican officials also knew that Brahm was sexually molesting seminarians at Winona. So they say that they know that, okay? And um, now we're talking about um, being truthful. We're talking about laity waking up. And um, so they knew these things. 
That means other people knew too. Ironically, it was rumored that the Vatican had sent Bishop Brahm to San Diego to clean up the homosexual mess at St. Francis de Sales Collegiate Seminary associated with the University of San Diego. After Bishop Mayer died on February 23, 1991, and Bishop Brown became the ordinary of San Diego, he, constituted, he continued to reside at St. Francis Seminary. Bishop Brown is the chairman of the USCCB's Ad Hoc Committee on Bishop's Life and Ministry and a spokesman for the AM Church on the issue of predatory bishops who abuse minors and adults under their care. The USCCB seven-member task force headed by Brahm is reported to be developing protocols for exercising mutual Episcopal responsibility in the realm of Episcopal sexual abuse and misconduct. Wow. The accusations against Brahm. Bishop Brown was part of the Bernadine homosexual loop. One of the victims called him a homosexual rapist. The summary, the summary case against him is pretty straightforward. Now remember, he's on the USCCB seven-member task force at this time. So that's how far up this networking is. In the 1980s, Bishop Brown was charged with sexually molesting seminary students at Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona, along with other bishops and priests, including Archbishop Joseph Bernadine. Brown pressured one of his victims to sign a retraction statement in order to obtain hush money from the settlement. Talk about blatant, huh? Blatant sin. The details of these charges did not come to light until March 13, 2002, in connection with an affidavit in favor of an employee of the Catholic San Diego News Notes, a traditional Catholic newspaper that was threatened with a lawsuit filed by the Diocese of San Diego and its ordinary Bishop Brown. It is here that we begin our review of the Brown case. News Notes, which, was, which has faithfully reported on the modernist revolution in the San Diego Diocese had been a thorn in the side of Bishop Brown for years. When the bishop decided to file a nuisance suit seeking a restraining order against the newspaper's photographer Robert W. Crumpel. As part of Crumpel's defense on March 13, 2002, his attorney, Richard J. Vatoon, obtained a statement from Mr. Mark Brooks. In Chapter uh, 15, of Lead Us Not Into Temptation, author Jason Berry covers the difficulties that Brooks experienced in San Diego's diocese, diocesan seminary under Bishop Leo Maher. Brooks, a native of Baltimore and ex-Marine and teacher, was a late vocation to the priesthood. In August 1980, at the age of 26, he entered St. Francis Seminary in San Diego after he completed his last tour of duty it was his lifelong dream to become a priest. As Brooks told Barry, it soon became apparent that his that life's seminary life at St. Francis had undergone a radical change, both in theology and morals, since the pre-Vatican II days. Aquinas was out and Kohlberg was in. Interesting. The age-old traditional warning against forming particular friendships was replaced by faculty insistence on the value of intimate male bonding 
and close male relationships. Homosexual acting out by staff, faculty, and seminarians was not simply ignored. It was encouraged. I'm going to read that again because that is just, it's just unfathomable to me. Um, Homosexual acting out by staff, faculty, seminarians, was not simply ignored. It was encouraged. In one case, a seminarian in his late 30s took a 16-year-old boy to live with him. I'm going to digress here one more time. This is why we advocate for these books to be part of the seminary culture now, part of a requirement because we want to get to the root of this networking. We want it to be out of seminaries. In another case, Father Nicholas Rivels, a predatory homosexual priest who taught music at the University of San Diego, was reported to have seduced a large number of seminarians at St. Francis Seminary. One, one of the seminarians that Rivels, Rivels corrupted said, those of us who had been through it with him, would see the next class of freshmen, and he'd pick out one he liked. They are together in chapel. Then he's driving Nick's car. Then all of a sudden, the guy is dropped. How do you say to someone, be careful, said the seminarian. Why are they so afraid to speak up? What devil is in there? What evil is in there that these men, these young men, are so afraid to speak truth? Where is God? Okay, God is there, but the blindness by the evil. In 1984, Ravels made the unfortunate mistake of trying to recoup books. The ex-Marine said that he went to the priest department next to the university's campus to comfort his chief abuser. He said that it appeared that Revels was watching porn and sipping wine in his living room with another man, a sitting bishop and well-known theologian. Brooks said he was also personally sexually harassed and propositioned a dozen times by one of the counselors. Father Stephen Dunn, who served as vice rector at St. Francis. When Brooks complained to Dunn, who was also his spiritual advisor, he was advised to lighten up. That St. Francis was a school of love. All I can say here is, oh my God. The ex-seminarian also recalled that for a while, there was a coffin kept in the storage room where some of the kinkier students acted out their more aberrant and occult homosexual fantasies. Brooks was eventually expelled from the seminary by Dunn following a brief mandate stay at a rehabilitation center for alleged alcoholism. The center released him after three weeks stating that Brooks was not suffering from alcoholism but from post traumatic stress syndrome. How very sad. It was, you know, I'm, kind of, I'm uh, digressing, but you know, you know, as Carmelites, we always look at the souls and we, we think of, you know, the souls working to get to heaven and to holiness. And the, this, this young man wanted to be a priest. He was called in his, in his heart to be a priest. And then he runs into all this Can you imagine what his soul was going through in this?
And um, anyways, okay. In 1984, after St. Francis officials refused to give him a recommendation to another seminary, Brooks filed a civil damage suit against the seminary, the diocese, and Bishop Mayer. Good for him, I say. Good for him. In May 1985, diocese attorneys negotiated a $15,000 settlement with Brooks. He dropped his suit, and his $9,000 in back tuition was waived. Brooks temporarily moved to Baltimore and took on a secular occupation. He returned to California in early 1990s. In September 1993, when he was living in Los Angeles, Brooks arranged to meet with Cardinal Mahoney on the recommendation of Bishop John Kinney of Bismarck, North Dakota, chairman of the newly established NCCB Ad Hoc Committee on Sexual Abuse. Brooks naively poured out his heart and his evidence to Mahoney concerning the problems of St. Francis Seminary, as well as information related to the sex abuse charges against Brahm and Bernadine and company in Winona. Brooks said that Mahoney took copious notes, a statement one would have no difficulty in believing given Mahoney's close connections to AM's church's homosexual collective. How very sad, going from one devil to the next. That's what networking in the church does. That's what corruption does. In return, the seemingly grateful, I also want to say, um, it's also what going after your passions. These men went after their passions. These, these, uh, seminar- these priests, I'm sorry, and these bishops were chasing their passions, and um, they, left, they left Jesus somewhere on the street. In returning, the seemingly grateful Mahoney offered to smooth the way for Brooks to study for the priesthood in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. The two men continued their correspondence until 1997 when Brooks reached two men continued continued their their correspondence until 1997 when Brooks reached a settlement with Brown in the San Diego Diocese on a final settlement of the St. Francis Seminary debacle. It had been at Mahoney's suggestion that Brooks entertain an open line of communication with Brown on the sex abuse problems at St. Francis Seminary. Bishop Brown referred to the negotiated settlement of $120,000 to be made in installments with Brooks as pastoral outreach. The settlement contained a strict confidentiality agreement, which served as a signal to Mahoney that he could dump Brooks without any adverse ramifications, and he promptly did just that. Brooks kept a copy of the diocese's canceled checks for evidence. There was one good thing beside the financial settlement that came out of Brown Brooks' dialogue. Brooks remembered that during their conversations, Brown systematically expressed an intense criticism of and criticism of and obsession with the San Diego news notes who voiced frequent criticism of the rampant clerical homosexuality and pedestry in the San Diego diocese under Brown. Brooks reported that the bishop had ordered all diocese officials not to speak to the news notes reporters. And I can say wow again. Wow. This is one reason that when Bishop Brown corporate corporation soul through a nuisance lawsuit at News Notes, investigative report reporter Robert Crumple, attorney Richard Batrone, Batoon, obtained a sworn affidavit from Brooks 
on Bishop Brown's long-standing feud with the Catholic newspaper. It, in his sworn statement on March 12, 2002, Brooks mentioned publicly for the first time that he had spoken by phone with a former seminarian from the Immaculate Heart Seminary in Winona named Jeffrey, Jeffrey Morass, who confirmed that while Bishop of Duluth, Brahm had coerced him into four years sexual relationship, Morass told Books that he could identify Brahm from the markings on his privates. Wow. Okay, I'm going to stop here. I thought I was going to read more, but we are on the top of page 858, and we'll begin here on our next podcast. Um, But you can see uh, how deeply ingrained this networking is. And, you know, by paying off and doing these things and keeping things silent, I think the silence is the most devastating. That, no, it needs just the opposite, more and more exposure to that the culture that has grown in the church um, hierarchy, that it is eliminated at the very roots. Okay, so with that, I want to say a prayer and um, ask our Lord um, to come upon us this moment. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And I want to say thank you to O.V. Cruz for being with us and and writing these books. And especially our lay advocate, um, Randy Ingalls, who did such a beautiful work, and we thank her so much. Thank you to both of you. And um, God, continue to bless these podcasts and to the lay people, Lord, um, who you call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.